This is Lawfare No Bull. On November 13th, Special Climate Envoy John Kerry spoke at the COP26 summit after 190 nations agreed late Saturday on a deal to reduce emissions. In his speech, he stressed that compromise on a range of issues was necessary to reach a deal for all. Here's Kerry's speech in full. So I've been thinking about this for a couple of days, but I really do believe that as a result of this decision and as a result of the announcements that have been made over the course of the last two weeks, we are, in fact, closer than we have ever been before to avoiding climate chaos and securing cleaner air, a safer water, and healthier planet because of this agreement. Now, you may scratch your head and say, well, is that hyperbole? No, I don't think it is. We've been cruising uh, all the way up to Paris, and Paris uh, uh, you know, Paris was the beginning, if you will, when the countries came together, but everybody wrote their own plan in Paris. And they wrote their plan based on less input, less knowledge, less science, less evidence, less facts, less Mother Nature messages than we have had in the last years. And so those plans, if they were fully implemented, you'd still have a rise of the Earth's temperature to about three point something degrees, if not more, higher, four. So Paris was a signal to marketplace, not a guarantee that we wouldn't be able to hold the Earth's temperature rise to well below two degrees, let alone 1.5. But now here in Glasgow, We have 65% of global GDP committed to real plans that have been certified by the IPCC or by the IEA or by various uh, modelers that you know, from rhodium to climate action to others. They've been certified to say, yes, if you do all those things, you can keep 1.5 degrees alive. And as a result of what took place here with nations that have never considered even having the word coal, in a, plan, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a plan, where it remains, even today after what took place, coal and the phase down of coal is on the books. It's part of the decision. And you have to phase down coal before you can, quote, you know, end coal. So this is the beginning of something. I think, you know, we always knew that Glasgow was not the finish line. And anybody who thought it was doesn't understand the challenge that we have. Glasgow, you know, was never going to be that we were going to come to Glasgow and everybody was going to have a a decision that was somehow going to end the crisis or, you know, automatically put us on the path we have to go. So I would say that, uh, you know, Paris built the arena and Glasgow starts the race. And tonight, the starting gun was fired. We have about nine years within which to make those critical decisions we were warned about in 2018 by the IPCC. And we have the years in this decade, the decisive decade, in order to cut 45% of global emissions to hold on to the 1.5. Now, we raised ambition here in Glasgow. This was not business as usual. 
I've been attending these meetings since 1992, when we first created this entire process. And the story here is not told only through the NDCs, as critical as they are. The NDCs were the basic tool that Paris did create. But the fact is that we saw the full coalition that we need come together here in Glasgow and make a commitment, and that includes civil society, private sector, NGOs, activists, young people, older people, people from all over the world, demonstrating and pushing. And the result is that uh, we had tribal and indigenous uh, representatives here in force demanding a just transition, which is vital, and demanding environmental justice, which is critical to any approach. So we had a series of objectives before we came here. First, thanks to many months of negotiations, the objective we had of, uh, of, of uh, finalizing that so-called archaic name, the rule book, but the famous or infamous, depending how you look at it, rule book, it completed here, folks. That was a goal. And it's hard. It was really hard to be able to do that. There's tough negotiations over things that matter in the context of economy and trade and, and people's beliefs about uh, how they should behave in this process. Transparency rules, how often we report, how we report, uh, all of those things, progress uh, in order to, to, to uh, uh, measure where we're going with the NDCs and what their meaning is. We set out to raise ambition. And on our team, we traveled the world to do that. Raised ambition with Indonesia, raised ambition with South Africa, raised ambition with Japan, with South Korea, with our colleagues in Canada, raised ambition uh, in terms of uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and, and Brazil. And so the majority of the 20 largest economies in the world, which are responsible for 80% of all the emissions, are among those committed to achieve the 1.5 degrees. And what we believe we're doing in that raising of ambition is setting a template for what we take out to other countries all around the world. We, so rule book, ambition. Third, Glasgow gives us a very clear blueprint going forward for the things we need to do from now through 2030 and 2030 through 2050. And it embraces keeping 1.5 degrees alive. It sets out a lot of steps in that regard. And while some people may have wanted even stronger language, the text that we agreed to has the first ever, believe it or not, mention of coal and fossil fuel subsidies. That's never happened. And it's happened in a way that big countries that have been dependent on coal have signed on to phasing down. Now, does that mean it's phased down? No, that's the follow-up. That's the accountability. That's the reporting. But we emerge from Glasgow having dramatically raised the world's ambition to solve this challenge in this decade and beyond. And we will have measurements starting now 
every month, every day, every period of the year, each year going forward. And we have a formal stock take, as you all know, in 2023. So there is accountability built into what happened here in Glasgow. Fourth, we focused on the critical issue of adaptation. And President Biden started the week off with his commitment to adaptation, creating the president's uh, emergency plan for adaptation and resilience and putting $3 billion into it in day one. That's how we started this COP. And we gladly join in uh, supporting the doubling of funding for adaptation because it's needed. We also obviously know, uh, and we also have a clear path, as I think you know, on $100 billion, uh, we are on track to fulfill that obligation, and it will go out into the future year after year, and it'll be more than $100 billion in those years. And finally, finance. More broadly, we help to ensure that developed countries are going to meet their commitments, and just as importantly, they're going to bring business into this fight. I repeat this. <laughs> it, 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 no government in the world has enough money in their budget or outside of it publicly to be able to affect the transition we need to make. We, we honor and embrace the reality that the UN finance gap report says that we have a gap of some uh, 2.6 to $4.6 trillion a year for the next 30 years. Where's that money going to come from? So since we know it's not going to come from a government, we have to bring it to the table from the places where it is. And that's principally the private sector. And the private sector here was in a force that we have never seen before, with a clear path forward for how we can achieve this. We have to bring, I'm not saying to you that I think there's 135 trillion automatically going to get invested. I don't, you know, a lot of that money is not going to be able to be deployed. But there are trillions of dollars which I do know can and will be deployed. And it's in a significant amount. And the six largest banks in America, just among themselves, have committed that they're going to invest some 4.16 trillion. And then when you add some asset managers, you're quickly up to six, seven, eight trillion that we know of for the next 10 years, just from a few American financial institutions. And what we're now talking about with those CEOs and leaders is how do we guarantee that money is really going to get deployed? And we are committed to work as a partner with individual countries. We already have signed up to our partnership with India to help deploy their 450 gigawatts of renewable. And we have finance and technology we're ready to bring to the table. And we also bring, hopefully, blended finance and concessionary funds to help de-risk and take first loss and make it possible for those investments to go forward. That's a critical component. This is not a one-way street. It's not just financial institutions that are going to put their money on the table. It's also governments that need to step up to streamline decision-making, guarantee access to land for solar and wind or offshore, permit, create transmission, so it's a huge effort by all of us to try to fulfill our possibilities that come out of this. So as again, I say, you know, this is the beginning of that 10-year sprint. 
The IPCC report is clear about what we have to do. We've done a lot of things on the sidelines together with the EU as a critical partner. We announced the Global Methane Pledge, and that is 70% uh, of global economy. 70% of the global economy is in that 108 countries. And their pledge to me immediately to reduce emission, which is the largest single grab you can get to reduce emissions fast. In addition, let me say a word about the US-China agreement. I've read in a few places, well, it's short on details, et cetera. Actually, it's not. It depends on what you look at in terms of the whole piece of it. But Article, uh, paragraph six of that agreement makes it crystal clear that what we're doing is with a view to our cooperation producing a reduction in emissions and even creating goals and targets and numbers. And what we plan to do with experts that come together from both sides as we work together is be able to accelerate the deployment of this technology and the effort to reduce those emissions. We're the two largest economies in the world, and we're gonna to work together to raise climate ambition in the course of this decade. And, and specifically, China put forward a willingness to announce next year, time certain, in the year, a climate action plan that is ambitious, that will be reported to the COP 27 next year, November. That's a date, that's a detail, that's certain. In addition, China committed as they did today, even though there was a change uh, on the focus, China still is signed up in the COP decision to phase down coal, uh, un un unabated coal, and to move to accelerate, uh, if possible, uh, this transition. And they've committed that to us too, and they announced a specific time frame for when that begins, and we commence for best efforts. And hopefully, because they say so, they're gonna make their best efforts to accelerate that to do it earlier. Which means we have the potential with China for the first time to work together to actually beat the schedule uh, that they currently put out. So, um, finally, let me just, I want to get into your questions. Uh, uh, we rejoined the High Ambition Coalition, which President Trump took us out of. Uh, we were part of its foundation. Now we're back in. Uh, we committed to protecting millions of acres of forest and oceans. 85% of the global forests are now committed to anti-deforestation efforts by 2030, that's a detail. We're working with Denmark and we're racing towards a zero carbon shipping. As a result, we announced obviously here in Glasgow, we took uh, President Biden launched PREPARE, which is the president's emergency plan for adaptation, I mentioned it earlier. Uh, and in April, he doubled our commitment to help vulnerable countries be able to manage the transition. And working together with our partners, we are uh, moving forward on the allocation of funds for other initiatives also. I might add that because uh, some of the money is in the infrastructure bill that passed, like 
500,000 charging stations and so forth. Some of the money is in the reconciliation. But our national laboratories are potentially on the brink of getting a, an infusion of, uh, of uh, funds that are allocated for busting the barriers that are in front of us with respect to the research necessary for rapid uh, deployment of new technologies and transformation. So um, we all know, you all know, obviously, that the boardroom discussions around the world because of ESG have changed. And with disclosure, uh, much on people's minds, it's possible that uh, the allocation of capital is going to be very different as people are required to look down the road at their own uh, investments and the consequences of climate on those investments. So my friends, here's, you know, Glasgow. I don't know how many of you got out. I, I've been able to get to uh, a couple of the events that were off campus, so to speak. And I went to uh, a few dinners and it's a beautiful old um, industrial city, uh, reminding me much of some of the cities in Massachusetts that I had the privilege of representing. Uh, a lot of the same texture old industrial community that's transformed and transitioned. But this is a place where a large part of the Industrial Revolution was launched right here. It was called the Workshop of the Empire. And uh, factories sent products all around the world, including to, to the United States in its early days. And because of, of Glasgow, this decision, uh, I really do believe that uh, uh, Glasgow is now going to, has made a major contribution to the new industrial revolution, to the new energy, uh, clean energy revolution. And, and we did a lot here to ensure that business is at the table as we do that. Major, uh, you know, we had United Airlines and, and uh, Apple and Google and Amazon and others here, assets of more than $8 trillion. And together, they are already implementing major decisions like buying electric fleets, trucks, big orders of trucks that are electric, uh, making the commitment. United Airlines committed that a certain percentage of their fuel that they sell will be 85% emissions free, even though the technology isn't completely there. They're going to strive for it. And companies have agreed they're going to only buy tickets on airlines that are doing that, that have that 5%. Uh, so they know there's a buyer there. And, and the same thing with steel. Volvo announced 10% of its steel is going to be purchased will be green steel for the, for the fabrication of their cars. Then there are, you know, Maersk uh, said that they had ordered eight new ships, all carbon-free. So a lot is going to be happening, and uh, uh, the implementation is the key. As we leave Glasgow, our code word is going to be implementation, follow-up, follow-through. And we're going to spend as much effort as we can uh, to try to make that happen. So, you know, i got to tell you, I uh, had the privilege of signing the Paris Agreement at the UN. Maybe some of you were there, but I think you saw the picture of my granddaughter sitting on my knee. And um, she has a, uh, she was two years old then, she has a, sister now, uh, and, you know, she deserves to be able to 
have answers to questions like, am I going to have clean water? What's going to happen with climate? Where are we heading? And, and so, you know, I really believe that, uh, uh, that, that we all have to answer those questions for all of our kids around the world. We came closer today to answering some of them, not all of them. There is still a gap in the emissions that have to be reduced. It is still a daunting task. There's a heavy lift ahead. But what we know is, given the, the proposals that have been put on the table, given the commitments that have been made, if we do them all, according to several reputable modeling, we would be at 1.8 degrees by 2050. And we could be at 2.4 or so, or higher, 2.6, by 2030. I believe we're going to accelerate. It's just my belief. I think we're going to have breakthroughs in technology. I think people are going to find it easier to do some of those things that they, than they think. And so I believe that, uh, uh, you know, those of us who've watched this progression of our planet growing more and more unstable and more and more polluted, and that's what it is. It's pollution. Greenhouse gases are pollution. Coal that travels around the world in the atmosphere and falls in the ocean and warms it and acidifies it is pollution. And what we need to do is live pollution-free. I think people all around the world believe that. So that's our choice. I think thanks to the work here in Glasgow, uh, the goals that we're setting for ourselves are much, much closer than they were, much closer than when we came here. And I think uh, we're going to get closer and closer uh, as a result, providing we implement and follow through. So happy to answer uh, questions. Uh, let me turn to Kevin Keane. Thank you. Last week, 100,000 people marched on the streets of this city demanding urgent action from you and other leaders. This week, they've watched an agreement being systematically watered down. How do you convince those people that what they've ended up with is actually urgent action? Well, first of all, I urge them to read it and to actually analyze it and study it. You know, some people obviously pronounced failure before we'd even sat down and had full negotiations. But I think that the reality is that what has happened here is very significant. Is it everything everybody wanted in every place? No. Uh, did I appreciate that we had to adjust uh, one thing tonight in a very unusual way? No. But if we hadn't done that, we wouldn't have an agreement. That's the choice. And sometimes you face tough choices in this business. We had a choice between whether or not we leave Glasgow with all these other things that we've accomplished and whether or not we change a word that says instead of, you know, that still says that we got to phase it down. I'll take phase it down and fight next year as we go into, uh, you know, on, on through the next year to get where we need to go. So it still says, you know, phase down, unabated coal power, that's very clearly in here. And if we start doing that and keep pushing, we're going to get to the next layer. But I disagree, you know, the systematic way. You look at the mitigation chapter in this, it's stronger than anything we've ever put out. You look at the adaptation, bigger, stronger than anything we've ever put out. You look at the 
the, the adaptation finance, stronger, bigger, doubling the amount, doubling the amount. That's not nothing. That's not business as usual. So I really think people have to take a hard look at this and recognize that this is a very aggressive increasing of ambition. And you have countries that haven't even sometimes taken part uh, wholly and excitedly in the process. Uh, and, and so now they are. We have Saudi Arabia, which is an oil producing. When you say Saudi Arabia, you think oil and oil production. But Saudi Arabia signed up to a major green hydrogen project in the desert that could really, if it followed through on, fuel uh, through pipelines, Europe, Africa. That's possible. And, and, and they've also committed to do a major deployment of renewable energy, which we know they can do. So these are real changes, folks. Uh, and, and I'm very hopeful about it in terms of... Uh, the long run. Uh, Brady Dennis, Washington Post. Thanks, Secretary Kerry. Uh, you mentioned adaptation, and I noticed that you made a point to talk about that in your remarks in the, in the final session today and to reassure countries uh, that that funding would be there, especially from the United States. And I just I, I want to ask you, um, how are you able to have such confidence that those billions will show up year after year, especially in a nation like ours that has a divided Congress where a lot of that funding will have to come from? And what have you told other countries this week who are seriously concerned, you know, that, that those promises haven't been fulfilled in the past, right. that they will be in the future? Well, I can speak for the next three years, uh, or at least through next year, depending on what happens in the midterms. But my hope is that people are increasingly becoming more and more aware of the reality of what is happening in climate change. This is not a... By, this is not a partisan issue, folks. There is no Republican label or Democrat label on a fire, on a mudslide, on people drowning in New York, on people freezing to death in Texas, on, on uh, the farms that have been flooded in South Dakota, or Minnesota, or other parts of, uh, of America. It's just, you know, look at the water drought that people are facing in four corners down, you know, with California, Nevada, Colorado, and Arizona. It's dire. And I think that Mother Nature is going to sustain the seriousness of purpose in Republican and Democrat alike. It's just my personal belief, and I think that that's growing as a need. I also believe that no politician can turn this back. If in the future someone runs for president and says, I don't like climate crisis, we're not going to do this, guess what? Ford Motor Company and General Motors are going to retool their entire plants. And they've made a commitment that by 2030, they're only going to produce electric vehicles. I mean, they'll be producing 50% of their vehicles with the electric. And by 2035, they've publicly, this isn't the government, this is a private company, the vaunted uh, you know, GM, part of America, deeply, says they are going to... Uh, be producing only electric at that point in time. So I, I, I really think that these trillions of dollars that are already committed to moving, I saw a thing on TV last night briefly, a news show, um, that was talking about whether or not it was wise to invest and how good an investment was it in these very big funds that are now focused on climate. And guess what? They're making enormous returns. They're doing better than a lot of other funds and other focus. So I think, you know, at your peril, 
will people in politics avoid the reality of what's transforming in, in the economy? The economy is making the decision about coal in America and in Europe and other parts of the world. Not the I mean, government, we don't have a, a government shutdown, but they're not building them. They are shutting down. Why? Because they're more expensive and they bring different kinds of problems. So I, I, I think we have, look, I, nobody can stand anywhere and guarantee you something for the eternity or for five years. I can't do that. But I can tell you for the years that I know of, that's going to continue. And if it doesn't continue, then other leaders and other players are going to have to step up and help solve that problem when it happens. Yeah, uh, Gene Chemek. Um, so, so President Biden has made climate justice and especially support for frontline communities a, a major hallmark of his environmental policy, mm -hmm. including financial support um, through the Justice 40 initiative. Why is the U.S. position here on loss and damage not a contradiction of that principle, given that these are the people around the world who are the frontline communities? What do you mean, our position on... The position damage? of not creating a facility that would quickly... We uh, supported creating a facility. We, we supported loss and damage. We signed off on it. What we, what we don't support... Uh, what, well, we support loss and damage, but um, uh, what we think is, in the next few years, we have to work through what is this all about. Where, where, you know, how much money needed for what? What are the circuit? What's the legality of it? You know, if if the Santiago network, which we supported setting up, we supported it in Naples, we supported it here, and we put money into it. We put fifty million dollars just a few days ago. I announced it into the adaptation fund, and so we do support it, uh, and and. We agreed to provide financing for the San Diego Network's work on technical standards, which is important. And we want to do that to make sure it has resources, but also to make sure that this is going forward in a thoughtful, sensitive way. And in my comments just now in the plenary, I made certain to address the concerns of people in who are deeply concerned about loss and damage that we were looking forward to being part of the discourse within the facility process that's been set up. But um, uh, obviously, an increase in resources ultimately is going to be necessary for people on the front lines. Uh, we think that could be delivered more efficiently, probably through some existing channels. But we also remain always thoughtful about the issue of uh, liability and, and sort of where this goes. So we need the dialogue to work through how is this going to be managed going forward. But loss and damage is on the map and serious, and uh, I think we were as serious about it as a lot of other folks here. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, uh, you made some references to different regulatory actions that the administration has taken, cars, methane. Some of that is either voluntary or, or proposals that are only in their earliest stages. Congress has taken, what is it, 11 months now and has not passed the policies that the administration needs to meet its goal for reducing emissions by half by 2030. And so now we have in this new deal, accelerated timelines for new commitments. Uh, I just want you to explain considering you know, how long it's taken when we still don't have the policies you need in place 
to do the first commitment, that in just a few months, the U.S. is going to come back and credibly make uh, an even more aggressive commitment? I, you know, Congress is, is always uh, exercising its prerogative of working through the democratic process with 100 senators and 435 members of the House. And uh, you have less independence in the House than you have in the Senate. But uh, that's playing out. And from what I understand, uh, the president has, uh, I mean, obviously I'm locked up here and I'm not there day to day for the currency and I don't know exactly where the negotiations are at this moment, but I know when President Biden is here, he's very, very fixated on it and hopeful that in the next days, the next weeks, this is gonna happen. Now, obviously if it doesn't happen, it, that's a challenge for us, but I have confidence Congress is you know, going to move on this. And, and so, and, and Nancy Pelosi made that very clear to me when she was here. So uh, I'm not going to second guess it. I'm not there. I don't have enough input right now to express any sense of where it's going to wind up, how it comes out. But I have confidence, basically, generically, that Congress will do its part and the president will do his part and that we will move forward on this. And, and I really believe that's going to happen. And I don't US know. It's going to come back with a new NDC that's even more aggressive within, you know, 11, well, 12 months Well, that depends. Time. You don't automatically have to come back with a new NDC. That's not the language. You have to review it, and as necessary, you make a judgment about it. We're doing a lot at home right now. A lot of things happening just with the marketplace. And you forget, even when Donald Trump was president, and he pulled out of Paris, and he pulled the money out, and he ridiculed the concept. Even during that period of time, 37 governors and District of Columbia continued to apply their renewable portfolio laws. And during that period of time, about 75% of the new electricity that came online in the United States under Donald Trump was from renewables. So America isn't so far behind, even though they didn't have a president or a budget behind them because the mayors and the governors are doing things all across our country. And I think, and now we have corporations added to that. So is that, my, is that President Biden's preferred scenario? No, of course not. And he's gonna fight for this legislation and I believe he's gonna get it. Seth Borenstein, AP. In terms of, just to follow up on that, in paragraph 29, it does ask countries to come back next year with a stronger uh, NDC. Yeah. So given that, given the U.S.-China agreement, what do you expect to come from the U.S.? What do you expect to come from China next for next year and the world? How much do you have to pick up the pace in the race that you are referring to? It does it have to speed up, as most outside experts say, and how fast? Well, I don't know the precise number as I stand here tonight. I, I can't tell you exactly what it is for either of us, China or us. That's part of the purpose of this working group, is to be able to jointly understand sort of where we are, what the measurements are, what's the input, make judgments about where we have to go and how fast. Um, but I don't need to know a lot of the numbers to know we're behind. We're all behind, way behind where we have to be. So we have to kick this thing into much higher gear. And uh, that's 
for all players. Uh, and obviously, the United States and China are about 40% of all the emissions. Uh, we, we've got to really demonstrate by example that we're serious about it. That's one of the reasons why I was so encouraged by the breakthrough with China, because heretofore, for months, we've been negotiating with China since February. We've had about 35 meetings of one kind or another, mostly virtual, but twice I went to China, two days at a time. And then we met in London the week before we came in here. We had two days of meetings in London. And, and it wasn't until here that we finally really kind of got in a play. Well, we started in London, but we carried it on here where we were able to connect and, 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 and get an agreement. And in that agreement, I'm encouraged that our experts are going to help us to be able to agree on what the numbers are, uh, agree on what the best way to deal with it is, and both hopefully be responsible coming back with, if we need to, an increased NDC. Now, China did up its NDC this year slightly. We would have loved it to have been much stronger and more. But at least in this working process we've established, we have a shot at getting much more precise and much more active together in doing that. And that may even inform NDCs, not just for us both, but for other people in the world. Uh, and, and we'll see what happens. I'd like China to peak as soon as they can. We, we, we've pushed very hard on that. Uh, some people suggest that China may have peaked actually in 2013. Uh, and other people suggest that China might be able to peak with, because they've gone up a slightly because of COVID and resurgence and demand, maybe by 2023, 24 uh, is reasonable to anticipate, but I don't want to get, you know, that's, the important thing is that we're now in that discussion. Uh, and um, my hope is that uh, I know President Xi is very focused on this issue. He's personally making decisions about it. Xi Jemwa is a direct line to President Xi, as I do to President Biden. And my hope is that as the two presidents meet this next week, uh, they will hopefully even build on, on what we've uh, been talking about. I really think, I'm, I'm not trying to sell this to you. I think in the structure that's been set up, in the dialogue that is now created, in the commitments that are on the table, in the presence of the private sector, with the NGO interest and with the extraordinary public expression, particularly from young people in the streets of the world, I think uh, Glasgow represents a major shift point. Now, that's today. Let's see where we are in a few months. Let's see what's happening. I'm, I'm you know, I'm operating on gut and the feel of having been here and what I think happened here. But we have to implement. Make no mistake about it. To make this not words on a paper, to make it more than the words that have been criticized and, and, and legitimately in a lot of cases, because a lot of promises have been broken. We need to implement. We need to go faster. We need to go further, quicker. Uh, 
Uh, and, and some people need to get more serious about this. And so that's the challenge. Uh, but it's clearly been put on the table by almost 200 countries that are here uh, today. Thanks, Mr. Secretary. Just going back to Seth's question about the revisiting of targets. I mean, as you mentioned, ahead of Glasgow, a number of countries did update their NDCs, but they didn't really increase their ambition. I, and now you're saying that the US might, but not necessarily increase its NDC next year. Can you explain what, why we should expect next year to be no, I don't, any I different? No, I don't expect it. It's, the language is necessary. I don't expect it. it's going to be necessary because our ambitious coal is 50 to 52%, thanks to Gina McCarthy, and that's stretching the limits right now. We need to see what's doable. But if we don't get there, then we still need to, as a matter of responsibility, figure out how we're going to get the 45% minimum reduction over the 10 years. But forgive me, does this, how does this agreement put pressure really on other countries to increase their ambition? The only way that pressure is exerted here, Lisa, uh, is uh, the acceptance of moral and public responsibility for actions. And the process by which this gathering you're all here. You're focused on countries. And I don't think a lot of countries enjoy reading about themselves in any of your publications or seeing themselves on TV being pilloried for setting it up so that people are going to die and they're going to be polluted and they're going to have to live lesser lives and, and crises are going to grow and uh, floods are going to be more frequent and storms will be more intense because that's the alternative. And countries that do not step up, I believe, will become, uh, uh, you know, the, the subject matter of very significant focus on the internet, on social media. That's a huge level of accountability, frankly, together with newspapers and television and the rest of the process. But other things that matter are gonna be peer pressure. Countries around a country, what they're doing. And, and uh, so, this process does not establish, and it cannot establish, and I don't know any country that specifically wants to be subject to some kind of a police force or something. This is one of those things that has to be compelling because of the substance and compelling because of the commitments you make and compelling because of the public scrutiny that holds you accountable to your own promises. And that can be effective. That's what brought us to Glasgow, folks. That's what created Paris. There's a reason these cops are up to number 26 and keep on going. And that is because there is a thirst for accountability and for action in this arena. And next year there is already, already you guys can start writing about COP 27. It's gonna be in Egypt and then COP 28. And those are the accountability moments. And that's why I said, this is the 10 year Start, you know, we're out of the starting blocks here. That's what happened here. We're, we're in the race. And every moment we're going to be reporting on and thinking about and making judgments about where we are in that race. And it's a long haul. It's nine years or so. Not precisely. No scientist will tell you. They can tell you exactly the month or the day or the year. But it's in that vicinity that they make a judgment. And I, 
and, and I hope to God that they've given it a little bit of a grace period because we're behind. Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare No Bull wherever you found us. And you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.